Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can expand your sustainable and ESG opportunities with insights from leaders in the field. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these weekly conversations about developments in this fast-growing industry. My guest today is Alex Bernhardt, a director in the Martian McLennan Advantage Group, where he's responsible for developing innovative strategies across Martian McLennan's businesses to address some of the largest environmental and social issues facing society in the 21st century, things like climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic. The Martian McLennan Advantage Group brings together expertise from across the company's four businesses to deliver innovative solutions to clients. The company has sustainable finance capabilities across all four businesses, which include the expertise of Mercer, Oliver Wyman, Guy Carpenter, and Marsh. Hello, Alex, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you, Paul. Glad you could join us today, and I want to start our conversation by referencing a Reuters article that addresses what you're doing at Marsh and McLennan. The article is about the financial impact of California wildfires. And in it, Dave Jones, a former California insurance regulator and a contributor to the recent Commodities Futures Trading Commission report, said more expensive insurance depresses home prices. And, and I'm quoting now, You can tell the same story in terms of sea level rise and flooding and more intense storms and their impact on residential real estate value. These asset valuation risks he refers to are all part of what you have uh, called the sustainable finance revolution, Alex. So where are we today in this finance revolution? And where do we have the potential for gains to be made in the sustainable finance arena? That's a great, great question, Paul. And actually, I should I should mention before I jump into to respond that MMC, as Marsha McLennan is referred to, uh, often it was actually a contributor to the CFTC report that that Dave Jones was commenting about. Oh, uh, we were very pleased to yeah yeah we were very pleased to contribute uh, to uh, you know the the authorship of that report, including the the sector this this chapter rather on climate scenario analysis. Um, and so, you know, very familiar with 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 that report and, and some of the sentiments expressed by former Commissioner Jones. I, I mean, in terms of the sustainable finance revolution, I mean, it's been something of an of an evolution to date. <laughs> but we're now, I think, I like to think anyway, at the elbow of the exponential curve uh, when it comes to the adoption of sustainable finance practices. I mean, we know that ESG integration is pretty firmly in the mainstream. You know, nearly a hundred trillion dollars of assets have signed up to the, the, the principles for responsible investing and, and many other initiatives. Um, and, and we have regulators, particularly those in the EU, uh, really looking at, at regulating for ESG uh, and, and other sustainability issues in financial markets. And, and while you know, some people, the naysayers will say, oh, that's just Europe, it's not, it's not the US. I mean, they forget, I think, that we operate in a global investment market and that Regulations in one jurisdiction have knock-on effects uh, globally, and, and you know you can look at the uh, GDPR uh, rules that that Europe passed relative to data privacy, and those had knock-on effects for a number of 
of U.S. businesses, especially those doing uh, doing business in, in Europe. So I think we can expect much the same here as the EU uh, regulatory framework for, for ESG starts to progress. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm really, uh, I guess we'll call it a, maybe a, a silver lining of, of, the, of the 2020 uh, maelstrom of, <laughs> of issues, um, you know, to date we've we've been focusing largely in the sustainable finance industry writ large on, on climate transition risk. Um, you know, going into the Paris Agreement in 2015, there's a lot of talk about a global carbon price. We, we had companies disclosing uh, emissions data increasingly voluntarily, uh, you know, irrespective of sort of problems with that data, you know, more of it was, was being made available. Um, and this enabled a ton of analysis and a, a lot of interest on the transition risk, risk issue. Um, you know, there's also, I think, a view at the time about five years ago that uh, transition risk was the most pressing issue that we had to address because regulation uh, to address uh, climate climate change was going to have to happen soon and, and be significant in order for us to avert climate catastrophe. Um, you know, and in that time frame, we've unfortunately seen not too much regulatory, uh, uh, or not, not strong enough, I should say, regulatory action. I and mean, there's plenty of action, but but nothing approaching a global global carbon carbon price. Um, and, and we've perhaps neglected, if, if I can be a little self-critical of the, the sustainable finance industry at the moment, neglected some other clear and present, present risks like social inequality um, and a host of other pertinent social issues like systemic racism uh, in the United States in particular, and, and also physical climate risk. And so current events, uh, whether you're looking at the pandemic or the Black Lives Matter protests, um, you know, the you know, ongoing, ongoing weather catastrophes in the, the U.S. And, and Canadian West Coasts and, and in the Southeast of the United States um, make the focus on these issues going forward unavoidable. Uh, and so, you know, while I'm not, you know, not a soothsayer, <laughs> uh, I don't have a crystal ball, I would say that they're, uh, these issues, so physical, physical climate risk and uh, S issues or social issues related to inequality, are likely to be sort of the, the dominant things that we focus on over the next phase of sustainable finance research and, and action. Okay, so now I want to go back to something that you referenced in your remark there, related to the, uh, the size of uh, this part of uh, the finance sector. Multiple reliable finance, financial industry sources estimate that environmental, social, and governance concerns impact, as you said, over $80 trillion in global assets under management. And this sustainable finance trend has advanced considerably, once again, uh, as you remarked, during COVID-19. But it's also been growing rapidly during the last five years with tremendous implications for our financial institutions and a variety of other industries. Would you share with our audience a couple of industry risk and opportunity assessments that Marsh and McLennan has done since you started with the firm in January of 2020? Sure. MMC or Marsh McLennan is a, a very diverse enterprise with, with a, lot of, a lot of interests across the four, four operating businesses that, that you mentioned. And, and so, you know, similarly, we have a diverse array of, of interests uh, relative to the Sustainable finance uh, revolution. Uh, I'll stick with that term. Uh, and you know, in the last nine months or so, you know, since I took on my my new role, we've we've put out papers relative uh, to 
and papers and also some supportive action uh, relative to the wildfire risk issue, which, which Commissioner Jones referenced in your in your opening opening quotation. Uh, we also looked at at human capital uh, as an ESG risk. Um, you know, we we put out some really interesting work on. Uh, if I don't mind saying so myself, <laughs> on uh, stakeholder capitalism and, and what the transition from a shareholder-focused business and investment management system to a stakeholder-focused system will will engender for investors in particular. Uh, and then we've also been looking more and more at the impacts of, of climate, both transition and physical risks on, on infrastructure insofar as a lot of the uh, the solutions for infrastructure will will come from infrastructure investments by and large and real estate investments by and large in the next you know 10 15 years and we got to make sure that we get those those issues right so you know we're, we're focusing on a whole a whole lot of different things um, happy to elaborate on any one of those if, if, if you think they'd be more interesting to your to your listeners yes uh, please Alex if you would let's elaborate a little bit on the infrastructure issue because I, I'm originally from southern Louisiana. That's a part of the world that is uh, sinking very rapidly into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and places like uh, Miami, Florida are subject to the same type of sea level rise flooding over time. What are you finding in your work in that area, where, especially as it relates to the impact on, on the um, um, infrastructure in in many many places around the world, not just in the U.S. So yeah, infrastructure is a it's a deep well of of interesting things to talk about there. Uh, no no pun intended to the extent that wells are <laughs> are considered an infrastructure investment. But uh, you know we'll start with the energy sector there. I mean some of the more obvious shifts are taking place in that space. You know we've seen uh, oil price drop to pretty low levels in the midst of, of COVID uh, and historically low levels really. And, and that's already disrupted the, the oil and gas sector pretty, pretty substantially. And it's in many ways sort of a taste of, of probably what's to come in the fossil fuel industry relative to the, the low carbon transition as well. And, and you know, in response to this, we're starting to see a number of oil and gas companies uh, make commitments to you know, either net zero or, or close to it. Uh, uh, carbon by by sometime mid-century, and and when you know as as the oil oil majors start to make those those commitments and those those recognitions, I mean, so so too does uh, the rest of the industry, and so there's definitely a, a shift that needs to take place in how we how we think about investing in infrastructure. Um, you know, some of these assets are very long-lived, thirty to a hundred years. Uh, you know, does a does it make sense to invest in a in a natural gas pipeline right now, considering the long-term trends? Does it make sense to uh, invest in another uh, coal mine or coal terminal, considering the uh, the long-term trends? And these are these are issues that that need to be uh, evaluated more more readily by by infrastructure investors. And beyond that, too, the the physical risk component is really important, and and again, sometimes neglected, even for assets that that aren't facing transition risks. Infrastructure often is you know, coastal, you know, think about ports, uh, for instance, or in many cases, airports as well. Uh, they, they often are, are susceptible to, uh, re require access to, to water um, for their operations. Many utilities, uh, power generation sources require water, not just hydro, but, but also uh, thermal generation sources. And 
if we're going to be investing in those and water availability in, in the region where that utility say is built is gonna go down significantly over the next 10, 20 years, uh, what's the impact that, what impact is that gonna have on your internal rate of return for that asset? Um, and these are questions that increasingly our clients are starting to ask and that we're starting to help them to answer. Um, so that's just a sort of a, the tip of the iceberg there. There's a lot more we could talk about, but um, maybe for the next podcast. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, related to infrastructure and of course, um, uh, other issues, uh, what's your perspective on the rapidly growing green bond, social bond and climate bond markets? with several recent uh, oversubscribed issues by both sovereign and corporate issuers uh, in Europe, but it's also starting to grow pretty rapidly here in the U.S. Yeah, I'm, I'm super bullish on the green bond market. I mean, I, I think that not only is it super compelling from uh, an impact or, or sustainability perspective, you know, the, the ability to tie use of proceeds to specific green activities is, is really, really powerful from an impact standpoint. Uh, it's also, I think, it makes a lot of sense financially. And, and you mentioned the, some of those, those big issues of, of late. Many of them have been oversubscribed. And actually, that's been something of a hallmark for the green bond industry, that, that, that green bonds tend to have higher uh, book order ratios, so more, more, more rates of oversubscription than equivalent vanilla bonds. Um, yeah, and if there's more demand, I mean, it's simple, simple economics, there's more, more demand for capital uh, than the price uh, typically goes down. And so for issuers, if they're able to achieve even a couple of basis points of the discount on the primary, primary market by, by going green with their issuance, I think it's only a matter of time before issuers start to, to recognize that there's a potential financial benefit here and they, uh, and they start to do it more, more en masse. But there still is you know, a need for a lot of education, I think, amongst, amongst potential issuers that they can do this and that the additional costs associated with verification and, uh, of, of the green credentials, for instance, are, are warranted given the potential, potential pricing discounts. And, um, and also, you know, you know, there's this more, uh, uh, more proof needs to probably be developed regressively uh, about whether those, those discounts are durable or not, because they don't occur in all cases, because obviously there's many factors that determine, uh, determine the bond's price much more than just the initial subscription rate. But, uh, but nevertheless, I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for growth in that, in that space, for sure. Yes, I agree with you. And, and one of the things that is probably going to affect the pricing, both in the fixed income and equity markets uh, over the years ahead, uh, is the um, regulatory structure that's being developed uh, in the EU initially, which potentially ends up uh, being part of the legal structure in the EU economies uh, by the end of this year. Uh, and so what, do you have any thoughts on that, uh, how that might spill over to other markets around the world, like in the U.S. and in Asia? Well, I, sure, for sure. I mean, I think the, the growth potential for, uh, for green fixed income markets in the U.S. is, is potentially, potentially huge. I mean, already you've seen uh, U.S. issuers like the, the government-sponsored enterprises, as they're called, so Fannie and, Fannie and Freddie, uh, in the U.S. are some amongst the leading leading issuers globally, um, and as they are in their specific circumstances, having more you know capital demands placed on them 
through sort of the capital framework that the uh, the, the regulator, the FHFA, is is evaluating now. I mean, I, I think what we can expect is more uh, more, not less, issuance from 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 them, and so that's that's a meaningful a meaningful thing already. Um, there's there's also a, a lot of opportunity, I think, in the U.S. municipal market. Um, okay. There have there have been a number of municipal issuers that have gone green already, but you know the number of potential media issuers is is in the you know hundreds, if not if not thousands, uh, and uh, you know we've only begun to sort of tap that tap that potential interest. And and specifically, I think there's there's also an opportunity for for innovation here. We we, we there, you've seen the the sort of rainbow of different uh, <laughs> a pertinent green bond, a pertinent to green bond uh, issuances come to market. You've seen sustainability bonds and orange bonds and blue bonds. Um, and I, you know, I'm all for that sort of innovation. They all link to ultimate, you know, end goals, which are, which are positive for the SDGs, which is, which is what we're trying to achieve. So don't definitely don't want to uh, overcomplicate this, but I think there's an opportunity to do even more there. I mean, the resilience bond, uh, concept has been around for a long time, and we haven't yet seen uh, much happen in that space. And the resilience bond, just for for reference, is a, a bond which finances some sort of a, say a climate adaptation or a disaster resilience activity, um, and then also links to an insurance placement of some sort, where the insurance price, the the cost of the insurance associated with the bond, goes down as the resilience activity takes place. Uh, it's a really interesting concept, and I'm excited to see some some sort of piloting take place in that area. Um, I'm also uh, sorry if you allow me to drone on a bit longer here. I'm also very uh, bullish, okay, <laughs> bullish on the uh, emerging market uh, green green bond uh, green bond story. I mean, I think there's uh, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, the, the glo global demand is is increasing. Uh, if we go back to infrastructure for a second, uh, I think the new climate economy estimated reports estimated that. Uh, 70% of, of new emissions um, over the next 30 years are going to come from emerging markets. And so what we, what we do there in many ways will determine whether we meet the, the goals of the Paris Agreement or, or not. And so we definitely need to mobilize more capital for green assets in, in, uh, in emerging markets. And there's been some really interesting examples there. You know, uh, Marsh McLennan company uh, Mercer was involved with, with IFC in, in helping to establish their relationship with uh, with Amundi for the Planet Ego uh, bond fund, which which was a, a blockbuster green bond fund a, a couple of years ago, um, which which channels money into uh, emerging market financial institutions for securitized green green debt, and there's you know plenty of other uh, examples of, of of funds like that uh, coming to market as well. So uh, I'm I'm excited for for the for that space, which is just watching it more closely going forward. Alice, you mentioned the res resilience bond um, or bonds uh, as a, a, a type of, I guess, a, a sustainable or green focused um, fixed income issuance. And you, in while you were talking about that, you talked about resilience activities. I'm not sure that I sort of, many of our subscribers know what might be considered a resilience activity. Can you offer us an example? Oh, sure. Well, the there's, uh, I think it's easy to think about it in, in, in sort of two forms. There's sort of gray and green uh, resilience interventions. And gray, gray interventions would typically be you know, building seawalls or building uh, man-made levees. 
uh, things of, of that nature, which serve to, both those examples serve to reduce either coastal flood or say inland flood risk. Um, there's been more of a focus of late on, on green interventions. So for instance, uh, using a coastal, restoring coastal mangrove forests or, or coastal barrier islands to act as a buffer for hurricane winds and, and coastal storm surge or using uh, natural, uh, naturally maintained or, or more sustainably maintained forest lands uh, as a buffer between homes and the wild urban interface to reduce fire incidents. And these, you know, the science in some of these uh, ecosystem-based or, or green-based resilience interventions is still, still emerging in some cases, but the potential and, and the need uh, for those types of interventions is just so high and, and uh, uh, really excited to see, you know, more more things come to market. I mean, one of the challenges though with with getting financing in place for the, those kinds of interventions is that they don't they don't usually produce a cash flow. Um, the, their main benefits, you know, whereas you look at a renewable energy investment, it, it produces a cash flow in the form of electricity that people pay for. Uh, but uh, on a resilience intervention, the main benefit is in the form of um, reduced future potential costs. Nice. And you know the only way to monetize that is either through a reduction in insurance premiums, uh, say that's one method, but that's you know at best a sort of partial monetization strategy. You know you could also potentially say uh, if the particular green intervention uh, sequesters carbon, you could potentially monetize some of those carbon offsets. Um, you know there, are, but but most of the other benefits are are non-market benefits and are hard to uh, hard to monetize. So we need to think about creative ways in which to to make those uh, financially viable for the issuers. Okay, so that, that was a perfect segue into my next question, Alex. And <laughs> this one's about greenwashing. I know, uh, you know, you and I have both been in this part of the industry long enough to have had significant experience with that taking place in the equity markets. Uh, how do you see greenwashing being a factor in the green fixed income markets as they grow and develop. And why don't you give our audience uh, your interpretation of what, uh, or an example of what greenwashing might be? <laughs> yeah, well, so, I mean, I, I've, I think greenwashing is in many ways, that, that it exists is many ways an endorsement of the overall sustainable finance <laughs> movement that people and uh, organizations feel it's beneficial to to be green, even if they aren't actually is, you know, proves that there's something, there's some merit to it, at least from a, a market facing standpoint. Um, and so, you know, it's not all bad, I guess. <laughs> and, and there's some degree of it that will be inevitable. Um, you know, and until we get, you know, a standard of standards or, or some sort of regulatory disclosure mandates, uh, you know, some level of greenwashing is going to be inevitable. Uh, and the only way really to cut to cut through it is to conduct your own thorough and, and detailed due diligence on particular investment opportunities. There's just really or, or to rely on sort of verified uh, third party, uh, third party verified in the green bond context uh, bonds. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that, that may be not even a guarantee, but it's at least, uh, you know, take some of the burden off of the, the initial investor in doing that due diligence. So. Um, I think I think that it's it's manageable. You know, if we if we focus more on verification, and if um, 
you know, if we all recognize, go into this with open eyes and recognize that there's the potential for greenwashing. Um, but I, I would hate for concern about greenwashing to impede capital flows into sustainable activities. It would be, you know, it's pardon, it's a it's a risk, but it's it's uh, it's not the one that I want to distract from the ultimate goal of of channeling trillions of dollars of capital towards the SDGs. Right. Yes, I completely agree with your perspective on that. Now, you've already mentioned both physical climate risk and transition climate risks in your remarks today. Uh, if you would, could you expand on what transition climate risk is about? Most people are probably familiar with the physical climate risks that we see occurring around us on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, Europe, uh, right now, uh, where you live, is uh, uh, you know, your, your air quality is at risk from wildfires. And then, of course, flooding and hurricanes and tornadoes have increased not only in number, but in intensity and, in, and, and physical impact. But tell us, tell our audience a little bit more about transition climate risk and how that might be affecting uh, or impacting the companies that they choose to invest in. Sure. So I mean, tra transition risk is a, um, uh, sorry, Paul, do you, do you mind if, if I flip that question? Go right ahead. <laughs> And turn it into more of a focus on the physical side, because you know, I, I mean, I, I agree with you to an extent that the maybe the 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 more um, common understanding of of climate change is, is around the the physical manifestations of it. But actually, in the investment market, I, I think that there's been more of a more of a focus to date on transition on transition risk and and how that will affect particularly okay, fossil fuel or carbon intensive carbon intensive industries. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and 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 while that you know I, I think transition risk is really important to evaluate and and we we are evaluating it uh, in many different uh, circumstances. You know, Oliver Wyman developed a uh, transition risk scenario model for sixteen banks in in partnership with the UN Environmental Program uh, a few years back, which has become sort of a, a standard setter in the transition risk evaluation. Um, space for uh, for banks and other financial institutions, financial institutions. And, and Mercer similarly has developed a, a climate scenario model that includes both transition and physical risk uh, assessment capabilities at the at the macro level and applies to institutional investor portfolios and, and tells them how exactly their portfolio or, or not, not exactly because obviously no model is precisely right but but how relatively I should say uh, their different asset classes and and industry sector exposures might might alter in certain climate scenarios. So I mean I, I think we, we've generally got a pretty good a pretty good grasp on transition risk um, and and how it will manifest at least at the uh, at the sector level. I mean there's a ton of variation in in individual company responses that needs to needs to continue to be uh, continue to be resolved and and analyzed. Uh, and obviously that changes as policy. Uh, policy changes uh, and/or technology changes. You know the, the the risk to transition for for an industry will will uh, will vary. Um, but what what we've seen less of a focus on, I think, in the finance industry is actually the physical uh, the physical risk component. And while you know we we recognize it's there, uh, the 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 future future impacts uh, or shifts in in weather conditions are are 
not have not been embedded uh, into a lot of financial analysis as yet. And interestingly, I mean, I think this is in part because transition risks again were viewed to be sort of more a more clear and present danger. But now, what we're seeing clearly uh, in 2020 is that the physical risks from climate change are are now. They are not 10, 20, 30 years from now. They are they're happening now. And they're getting more and more urgent to address. And if we don't adapt soon, you know, we're going to have some pretty significant, uh, possibly humanitarian and, and, and other issues to deal with. So, um, you know, just looking historically, there was a, a great study by uh, an, an academician, Jeff Lazo, and some colleagues done uh, several years ago that, that estimated, based on historical data, that as much as three and a half percent of of U.S gross domestic product has been susceptible to weather variability. And that's just in the past. And, and what we know from sort of going forward climate analysis is that, you know, the potential risk to GDP, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> a measure of the potential risk that, that climate might pose to the economy, a potential risk to GDP at, a, at like a four degree Celsius warming above pre-industrial averages could range anywhere from say five to 25% of, of GDP loss. And when wow. you have, you know, there's a, there's a ton of uncertainty there, obviously. And, um, but, but when you have a, a number as big as 25%, that's reasonably founded uh, on scientific analysis, uh, you, you got to pay attention to it. <laughs> and so well, what we're starting to see. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Well, I was just going to say, it certainly uh, has, um, been the case over the last 40 years or so that client, climate science has been very accurate in its forward-looking predictions about the impact of climate change. Uh, would you say that, that, uh, that we could expect that accuracy to continue going forward, uh, you know, especially related to, like you said, to physical climate? Uh, well, far be it for me, I think, to predict the the accuracy of of scientific uh, projections, but I I I do think, and there there is such a wide band of of potential outcomes and, and uncertainty around those 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 outcomes that I mean it's hard to say what precisely will happen, but what we clearly do know and what we can tell from our own lived experience uh, here on the on the U.S. West Coast, where I said currently under thousands of of feet of of smog from or smoke from uh, wildfires mm -hmm. is that is that there's uh, you know there's there's a risk here <laughs> that needs to be addressed uh, in investment portfolios uh, now and and one of the keys to to addressing this this physical risk is what what's sort of being termed at least on the fringes uh, maybe I'll elevate it here uh, spatial finance so using geospatial data to inform uh, risk evaluations of, of physical risk and this and this geospatial data is you know, includes where where the exposed locations are, so their their latitude and longitude or their address, but mm -hmm. but also looking at the hazard in that location and how it's changing or likely to change in certain climate scenarios, and that forward-looking perspective is is kind of what's what's missing right now. And in, in the insurance industry, for instance, you know, catastrophe modeling and and other forms of geospatial mapping are de rigueur. It's, it's what's done every day, but almost all of those analyses are done uh, based on historical data. You know, CAT models are almost all calibrated based on historical event sets. And, 
you know, we need to now start thinking more creatively about, you know, how is the weather going to change? I mean, if we're underwriting a property uh, as, a, as an insurer, if one is underwriting their property as an insurer or as an investor, you're holding on to that risk. You hope to hold on to that risk for the long term, even though you might have an annual sort of contract in the insurance context. And, uh, you know, understanding where that risk is going is, is going to be increasingly important, um, even, perhaps even more so than where the risk has been historically. Uh, so that's that's something that we're we're focusing quite a lot on now at uh, at Marshall McLennan. Great. Well, uh, as you said earlier in our conversation, Alice, there's clearly a lot more to talk about related <laughs> to this topic, and uh, we're just about out of time today. I, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join me on the Sustainable Finance Podcast. And where can our subscribers learn more about the Marshall McLennan Advantage Group? And how can they reach you with questions about today's program? So our, we have a, a website, uh, mmc.com. And uh, actually, if you look at the backslash insights page uh, on mmc.com, that we have all of, all of MMC's research uh, up there across the, across the businesses and some of the stuff that the Marshall McLennan Advantage team is, is putting out. And, and you can reach me personally at uh, alex.bernhardt at oliverwyman.com. And, and maybe you can, so I don't have to spell that out. You can put that in the, in the liner notes of the podcast, Paul. That would be great. Sure. We're glad to do that, Alex. Thank you. And thanks again, Alex Bernhardt of Marsh and McLennan. To our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast.